Ian for the opportunity you gave me to preach this last sermon before Christmas. Special time for us as believers. Amen? If you're like me, I think you receive emails from time to time from different stores and places offering new products, new services, or big sales on computers, AirPods, whatever you want to call it. And I'm sure that in these days specifically, you have received all kinds of promotions about that. And we also see how on television nowadays, uh, Christmas has become the season to buy, to sell, to give away gifts. And let me tell you, this is the same back home in my country, so don't feel too guilty about that. A couple of weeks ago, I received one of those emails, and it was titled, This is the Season for Peace and Quiet. Oh, pretty good, huh? But the words were made of out of PlayStation controllers and Xbox <laughs> controllers and all type of electronics, implying that peace is achieved by buying a PlayStation and then giving it to little Jimmy. So every time he feels frustrated, he can go to his corner and play for a few hours so everything is peace and quiet. This is the second time I call, I call him little Jimmy. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to say that it's wrong to give gifts, okay? Actually, at the end of the sermon, I can give you my Amazon wish list <laughs> and um, we can arrange some things, okay? <laughs> Your PlayStation, anyway. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, that Christmas is a lot more than that. Especially for us as believers, Christmas has a deeper meaning. We shouldn't let ourselves, we shouldn't let ourselves be carried away by the definition of Christmas that the world gives nowadays. But rather, that we see the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and apply that example in our lives every single day. That's the idea. That's the point. After all, Jesus is the reason for the season. Very good. Now, in the passage that we will be studying today, which is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, God is going to give us the ultimate example so we can live our lives with humility and unity in Christ. We are going to consider three aspects of that example. Number one, the instruction. Number two, the description of that example. And number three, the purpose of that example. I have titled this sermon, The Ultimate Example. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, worshiping your name and asking your blessing for this sermon. Let us pay attention to it. Let us read with understanding. understanding. Let us apply the Bible to our lives every single day. Let your name be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll give you a small context to the letter uh, to the Philippians and to the passage that we are going to be talking about specifically. There are several topics that stand out in the letter to the Philippians. One of the most important of those topics is the one dealing with unity among the believers in the church in Philippi. Paul is exhorting his readers to practice love and unity among themselves. That's the, that's the main topic of the letter. 
Philippians is an extremely practical epistle. It's an extremely practical letter. It's filled with practical applications about how you can live your Christian life, how you can apply it to the church and to yourself. But the only strictly theological passage that we find in this letter is the one in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And that's very important. And we're going to see why today. Now, in the beginning of chapter 2, and I ask you to go to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is telling the church that they had to show their faith in Christ by being united, by thinking the same things. Let's read verse 1 and on. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Those words, if there is, talking about the uh, context of this letter, doesn't refer to something unsure. It's not like Paul is saying or opening the window to the opportunity, to the possibility of these things happening in the church. He knows for sure that this church is behaving this way. He knows they are showing these traits. So, a better way to understand those words will be by translating them like, since there is. So, we can read it that way. Since there is encouragement. Since there's comfort from love. Since there's participation. Since I can see affection and sympathy. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So, that's the idea. And then the chapter continues, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what we have here is the outward representation of the Christian faith. This is how you can see, this is how you can hear, feel, smell, the Christian faith in action in the church. That was the case with the Philippians back then. And I really hope that this is the case for the True Life Church this morning. That you guys are showing these attitudes. That you, you guys are showing encouragement, comfort from love, participation, affection, sympathy. So this is the context to the passage of today. So... That's how we land on verse 5 in this beautiful poem that reminds us of our loving Savior. So, the first aspect to that example is the instruction. Verse 5, let's read. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Those words, have this mind, uh, could be translated, having you continually the mind of Christ Jesus. The idea here is that we as church are supposed to show this continually, not only for Christmas. Everybody can be Christian for Christmas or Easter, you know, special days. But the idea here is to show this continually in your life, having you continually the mind of Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul has just exhorted the, Philipp uh, the Philippians sorry, not to look over, you know, their own things but you know others and then he immediately challenged them to have the same mental attitude as Jesus the Bible is filled with examples set by Jesus and we could talk about his example for hours 
but I'm going to read one from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. So this is the mindset. This is the context of this passage. His example to us. So what we have here in verse 5 is an illustration of that humility so we can be in unity. Of course, as believers, we're not going to follow his example in his deity because he's the only one. Of course, we're not going to follow his example of moral or spiritual perfection. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can redeem people from their sins. So don't go out this morning thinking that you can save people. No, we are called to follow his example of humility as he manifested in his incarnation. Now, this is in severe contrast to the Pharisees back then and the spiritual teachers back then. They loved glory to themselves. They love to be, you know, in a place like this, having people pay, pay, paying attention to them, like John Harrell. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's for calling me Luis Venezuela uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is so, this is in a severe contrast to those false teachers back then. So Jesus is uh, commanding, Jesus is telling his believers to follow his example of humbleness of humility. So this attitude of mind implies a serious commitment to self-denial. So think about this, uh, the rest of the sermon. Self-denial in the service of others. To be willing to take the place of a servant in order to glorify God and to be a blessing to other believers. So, I'm going to ask you now. Are you willing to put your own needs aside in order to to glorify God in order to serve your fellow, your fellow uh, Christians? Do you have the same mindset that Jesus has? Do you have it this morning? I hope you do. Have you ever heard the saying, do as I say, not as I do? The meaning of this is that you have to model yourself after my instructions, but not my actions. So the implication here is that the speaker is imperfect, that the speaker commits mistakes, but you have to follow my voice, my, my instructions, but not my life. Well, this is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is telling you what to do. He's commanding you to do something in verse 5, but he's also showing you with his life what that example looks like. Do you see the difference here? So... That's the instruction, that's the command we have as Christians, to say no to ourselves and act out of humility. Now, that humility doesn't come from us. It's not natural, because we are prideful, we are selfish. This humility comes from God, comes from the, God, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Remember that today God is, go is giving us the ultimate example. So we can live our lives with humility and unity in Christ. We just talked about instruction. Let us talk about the description of that example. Verse 6 and on. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbles him, himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the most beautiful and impactful evidence that we have in the Bible about Jesus' life, at least in my opinion. This is going to summarize, this is going to encapsulate the service that Jesus did for us. So in case you're still not convinced to follow Jesus' um, instruction in verse 5, we are going to see exactly what happened to Jesus, phrase by phrase. And I hope that does the trick. We'll see the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And I know that this, is, this isn't the typical Christmas sermon. This isn't the typical Christmas passage. But guys, we can't talk about Christmas without talking about the cross. Because Christmas was just the beginning. The purpose of that was Christ dying on the cross for us. Keep doing that. <laughs> so, verse 6. Who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Jesus was from eternity unaltered. And always will be in the form of God. In the Greek, we have two words for that word form that we have in English. One of them talks about the external appearance of something. For example, I have this bottle of water. It has some water inside and, you know, has this shape and whatever. And it's just an exterior, you know, thing. This is how you can see it right now. But what, what will happen when I drink, you know, all this water and then I twist this bottle and, uh, and I crush it? It has a different form. It has a different um, form. That's the word. So it changes. This is just talking about the exterior appearance of something. It can change from time to time. Now, the other word for form in the Greek talks about the external representation of the internal condition. That's something that doesn't change. That's something that stays. Doesn't matter how many times uh, you're trying to change it, the essence lives within that thing. So the word that we find here for he was in the form of God is the second one. Talks about the condition, the internal condition of Jesus. He was God. It didn't matter if he looked like a human being on earth. He was in the form of God. He was God. He is God. So let me just start by saying that. So the idea is that before the incarnation from eternity, Jesus pre-existed in the form of God, being equal to God, the Father in everything. So instead of saying he was, we could say he existed. He was God. So by his very nature, Jesus Christ is, has always been, and will always be fully God. Amen? Now, why is this important? For two reasons. Number one, because our entire faith circles around the fact that Jesus is God. But number two, and more specifically about this verse, uh, the implication of the second part of this verse. So, he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's why this is so important. I want you to think for a second about the most valuable thing that you possess. Maybe a 
at your house, maybe your cars, maybe you have a business, I don't know. Think about the most valuable memory, the most important memory that you have. Think about the most valuable or the most important person that you know, that you have. Now, I'll ask you a second question. What will you be willing to do or get in order to let those things go? Hmm. Maybe you will want, you know, lots of money in exchange for your valuable things, properties, assets. But what about your spouse? What about your children? They are priceless, right? Well, Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was God. Jesus was in the form of God. And he didn't consider that a thing to be grasped. He didn't consider that a thing not to let go. Do you understand how deep that was? And this is where his humiliation begins. This is the first stage. We're going to be covering seven stages of his humiliation. So this is the first stage. Him not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped. We'll try to see the process phrase by phrase. Second stage, and we are going to uh, stay here in verse 7. But emptied himself. And this is a strong word. In the Greek, it's kenoa, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Jimmy has talked to you about the kenosis. This is the process of the emptied that he did. That word in the original has a couple of meanings. Number one, to reduce something or someone to nothing. Or, number two, to destroy or demolish something. Do you see what Jesus did for us? He reduced himself to nothing. He destroyed, he demolished so, uh, himself. And that describes the humiliation the, of Jesus Christ when he took human form. Now, the pronoun that is after that word is also very important. It says himself. That means that nobody did it to him. He did it to himself. He didn't just volunteer to do something, you know, that someone else was going to punish him. He did it to himself. Do you see the self-denial there? The self-denial that I was telling you a few minutes ago? The Lord emptied himself in a voluntary sacrifice that culminated in his death on the cross. Now, one more thing about this phrase. What did the Lord empty himself of? Well, first of all, he didn't stop being God. Let me just clarify that. He didn't stop being God. His deity wasn't compromised. Christ did not renou uh, renounce to his attributes, but instead he limited the voluntary use of those attributes. So he was still 100% God on earth. He just veiled those attributes, covering them with the work suit of a servant of God. That's what he did. And that was his humanity. Now we'll see how that works in the third stage. By taking the form of a servant. In the next step of this descent in which he stripped himself even more, Jesus left all the rights of his lordship, taking the form of a servant, of a slave. For cultural reasons or historical reasons, 
we don't like the word slave or slavery. And I understand that. But in the original, in the Greek, this is the word that we find here, doulos, a slave. And a slave possessed nothing. A slave didn't possess or own the clothes that he wore. Everything he had, including his life, belonged to his master. He was property. He wasn't a human being. A slave wasn't a human being. Now, Jesus did own his garments, but he had no land on earth, no houses, no gold, no cars, no jewelry. He didn't have a business. He didn't have a boat. He didn't even have a horse. So, Joel Olstein, in case you're watching this, your face. <laughs> so he came to earth and became a slave in service for us. He didn't possess anything on this planet. Fourth stage, being born in the likeness of men. Now we see that Jesus made himself like men. And this is how God did it through his conception uh, and virgin birth. Now this phrase, in the likeness, is also very important. In the original is the word homoia, comes from homo. Sounds familiar? It talks about two things being equal, two things being the same, two things looking the same. So when it says in the likeness of men, it's saying that is uh, something that is made to resemble something, not only in appearance, but also in reality. So this, what this means is that Jesus wasn't a clone. Jesus wasn't like the Avatar movie, you know? He wasn't in heaven controlling a human body on earth. He was actually here. He was actually a human being. And that means that he felt, uh, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He suffered pain. He felt sadness. Like any other man, he got tired. He felt weak. He needed to sleep. So kenosis made Christ appear as a man before man and not as God. Now, can you imagine God became one of us? Isn't that humiliating enough? No. He continues. Fifth stage, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. To continue the profound description of Christ's humiliation, the text says that he humbled himself. The emphasis here in this phrase is, is not much on uh, Jesus' form, but on his personal attitude. He humbled himself. The translation to this is um, to lower oneself. So Jesus lowered himself not only in relation to God, as we covered, but also to other men. So the meaning of this is Jesus came to earth, so he humbled himself in relation to God because he was on earth, he was a human being, but also under the man. So on planet earth, there were humans with more power than Jesus. Human power, I mean, uh, you know, authorities and, and whatnot. So the most impressive and moving moment of Jesus' humiliation was his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. He humbled himself. He lowered himself in relation to them. To them. They mocked him. They spat on him. They whipped him. They painfully ripped part of his beard. So not only he came to earth and left his reign on heaven, 
but he was being humiliated by men on earth. Do you see how deep this is? And he did it on service for us. Yet, he never defended himself. And this is the part I always get emotional. He didn't get angry. He didn't demand anything. And he had the right to do it, but he didn't do it. He didn't accuse anybody. He knew that they were wrong, but he was here to serve us. He refused to assert his rights, his rights as God or even as a human being. Have you heard the phrase human rights? He didn't assert those rights. He let the punishment um, on himself. Sixth stage. By becoming obedient to the point of death. You might think that at this point, in his final sacrifice, he will say, enough, I've had it, I'm out of here, and just return to heaven. But he couldn't, but he didn't, because his perfect submission carried him to the death, because the will of his father was for him to die on a cross for us. So he was obedient to the point of death, and that's how we land on the seventh stage of his humiliation, even death on a cross. In many ways, he could have been executed. He could have, you know, cut his head like John the Baptist, or stoned or hanged, but he had not been predestined for that death, for another kind of death, but the death on a cross. Crucifixion is perhaps the most cruel, extremely painful, and shameful form of execution, execution sorry, ever conceived. It was perfected by the Romans. It was reserved for slaves, the villas criminals, and the enemies, enemies of the state. And do you know that no Roman, Roman citizen could be crucified? No matter how atrocious his crime was, there, there was just no way that a Roman citizen was going to be on a cross. It was so low, it was so shameful that they didn't live, they didn't let their own citizens to be crucified. But the Son of God was. In the US and some other countries, we have or you have what it's called the death penalty. It's for the worst criminals as well. But the process is different nowadays. You have a chair or a bed or something like that. And you have the criminal there and they use gas or chemicals. And he basically goes to sleep to pay for his crime. It's a, it's a sad process and I don't agree with it, but um, they try to treat the criminal with respect as a human being. That wasn't the case for Jesus. He was tortured. He was crushed for us. Do you see the difference there? The Son of God did this to himself. Additionally, the death on the cross had a special meaning for some of the cultures back then. For the Jews, it was a curse. For the Romans, like we said, it was shame. It was reserved to the worst. For the Greeks, it was madness. 
So do you understand now just how low our Savior went? Do you realize that he was humiliated in so many ways? He left heaven. He left his kingdom. He came to earth. And not only that, he was under men. He didn't have anything here. He became a slave for us. Remember, we can't really celebrate Christmas if we don't think about the cross. So this phrase, emptied himself, find its meaning in these descriptions that we just said. The resembles to man, the form of a servant, of a slave, that he took his human condition, condition and appearance, the conscious and voluntary humiliation he went through, and the obedience that led him to death and death on a cross. So all these is, uh, includes, sorry, this remains in the phrase emptied himself. This is the kenosis. And this kenosis led Christ to temporarily change his mode of existence, but never his essence. Let us not forget about that. He never stopped being God, but he suffered the pain. He was actually executed by humans. Remember that in verse 5, he is giving us one command. Well, in verses 6, 7, and 8, he is showing us with his life that command. To humble yourself, to serve others. So that was the description of his example. We just saw how deep his humiliation was. And it wasn't like a vacation trip to Honduras. I recommend it in the summer. It wasn't like a vacation trip or even a business trip. Guys, it wasn't even like a mission trip to Honduras where you have to suffer, you know, the heat and the dust and, you know, you're tired and you have to deal with me back there. No, it wasn't like anything like that. It wasn't like Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to go to earth for a few years and then I'll come back and that, that'll be fine. It was a painful process, guys. It was a shameful process that he did for us. We're not going to read this passage um, because of the time, but I want you to write it down so you can read it later. It's found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 through 11. And it's going to describe how he was predestined to suffer from, for, for us. It talks about how he was pierced for our transgressions, how he was like a sheep that was killed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet, he didn't open his mouth. And he talks about the process so you can read it later. So remember that today God is giving us the ultimate example so we can live our lives uh, with unity and humility in Christ. Let's talk about the purpose of all this. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this phrase, therefore, is making a direct connection of verses 6, 7, and 8. It's like saying, because of that, for this reason, talking about the sacrifice, for that reason, 
God has highly exalted him. So after a painful descent and humiliation in seven steps that we saw, comes the greatest exaltation for our Savior. And no one else deserves this more than him. Amen? God acts by exalting the one who gave his own life. It's the divine response, response sorry, of to humiliation. Because whoever humbles himself will be exalted by God, not by yourself. And now, do you know what's awesome about this? That even though the humiliating process was painful, it was awful and undeserved by Jesus, that was temporary. That only lasted for a few for a few times, for a short time. But that gave way to what's permanent and eternal. His exaltation. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to be the Lord of Lords forever. He's going to be, his name is going to be exalted by many forever, for years to come. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The issue here is that uh, Jesus Christ, sorry, Christ didn't have the name Jesus before. This name was given to him at the time of his incarnation, like Matthew one twenty one says, talking about Joseph and Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So in his very name, we can, we can find the purpose of his life. The purpose was to save us. And then on that cross, he saved us indeed. He is therefore Jesus, Lord. Amen? That's his name. And his name is above every other name. Name. Now, we're talking about the purpose of all this. Well, this is the consummation of that. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth. On our present times, the name of Jesus is often blasphemed. It's often offended. It's also often insulted or despised. Not only that, they also despise and mock those, us, that worship the Lord. They make fun of us. They call us crazy people. But on that glorious day, brothers and sisters, on that glorious day in human history, all without distinction will have to bow at the name of the sound. At the sound of the name, sorry. Jesus Christ, Lord. So that name alone is going to cause all humanity to bow at his name. There's a protocol if you are in presence of the president or the queen or a king of any place, you have to stand up, you have to wait for him to, him or she to sit down and you have to, you know, show some kind of respect to that person. And um, that's human stuff, that's human protocols. You can do it or you can choose not to, you can actually leave the building if, you know, someone, you don't agree with is in you know the building like if my president came here uh, I will just go that way <laughs> but that day nobody's going to have a second option no one is going to have an alternative but to worship his name verse 11 and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. Do you know 
who Neil deGrasse Tyson is. He's a scientist, he's a smart guy. We have a quote that he said once. It's actually kind of good. The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. That's true. If you don't believe in the gravity, the law of gravity, that doesn't matter because it's real. Things fall. But I'm going to correct that um, quote and I'm going to adjust it to the sermon that we have this morning. The good thing about the Bible is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. And this passage is not saying that all the Christians are going to bow at his name or the Christians are going to confess his name. It says that everybody is going to bow at his name. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So it won't matter if you speak English. It won't matter if you all speak Southern English. It won't matter if you speak Espanol like I do. Every single human being is going to declare to confess that Jesus is Lord. And not just that, it won't matter if you believe in him or not, you are also going to confess that he is Lord. For those, it's going to be a terrifying day because they are about to meet judgment. But for us, it's going to be a day full of joy. Even those who are dead will also confess that he, that he is the Lord. Like Revelation 5.13 says, and I heard every creature in heaven, listen everybody, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That day, that day, everybody is going to glorify his name and the name of the Father will also be glorified. So today, God gave us the ultimate example so we can live our lives, our church life, with humility and unity in Christ. We talk about the instruction, remember, verse 5, have the same mind that is in Jesus. It's a command. It's not a recommendation. So I'm not going to take complaints at the end of the sermon. <laughs> this is a command from the Lord. We also took some time to see the description of that example. We saw these painful process that showed us what he did for us, how he emptied himself for us. And lastly, we talk about the purpose of it all. Jesus' name and his lordship are to be confessed by every tongue on earth. Now, before we leave this morning, think about your life. I want you to think about those things holding you back. What's holding you back to act out of humility, to serve others, to bring unity to the body of Christ? Is it your money? Do you have a lot of money so you don't want to do it? Do you have possessions on earth? Do you have properties, things? Is it someone you know? Is it yourself? Are you prideful? Guys, Jesus left heaven for us. He is the ultimate example. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you in this moment for the opportunity you gave us to open the book, the Bible.
and to learn what you want us to look like as believers. Thank you, Lord, for the command that we have of having the same mind of your son, Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for sending your only child, your only son, to die for us in this painful process, in this humiliating process where he emptied himself for us. Lord, if we want to worship your name, give us strength, give us wisdom to apply this example to our lives every single day. Let your name be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.